Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. I'm Scott Schiffer, and today I'm joined by Christine Jones and Scott Higginbotham. Scott, Christine, good to have you guys. Thank you. Good to be here again. Yeah. So today we are on our final episode of the Worldview Driven Church series that we've been doing now for the last 12 weeks, and uh, which seems like a long time, but there's a lot of information to cover. And um, in covering this, we've been focused on a series of articles that David Noggle wrote on what he called the worldview-driven church, which is a church that is uh, holistically biblical uh, and incorporates the story of creation, fall, and redemption into everything that it does, from worship to evangelism to discipleship to uh, how it looks at church governance and ordinances and to how it does uh, services where they incorporate people uh, to participate into the services and not simply observe the services uh, as we so often see in churches today. And so as we've been going through uh, this series, we've talked about a number of issues and uh, each different episode has had a different guest on. So I'm glad to have both of you guys here today as we sort of uh, put a, uh, a cap onto this series. Uh, but I want to just to begin uh, by asking you guys if there's anything particular about the worldview-driven church that has really stood out to you the most. What's you know the the biggest issue on your heart that you think you know this is something that that really moved me and that I want to make a change, uh, you know, even in my church or in in my sphere of influence with. And uh, Christine, we can start with you. Okay. Um, well, for me, it was the discussion of the uh, ministry of imagination, the idea that a Christian needs to um, have a transformed imagination in order to change themselves and change the world. Um, as I've witnessed a lot of the discussions that people have online these days, sometimes it's within the Christian community, sometimes it's with Christians and non-Christians, sometimes it's with people from um, different political perspectives, but but one side may be claiming to be a Christian. I often notice this distinct uh, failure of imagination, and the way I see it play out is an inability to imagine the other person's viewpoint, the other person's perspective, another way of looking at the world other than the one they have received. And to me, this amounts to the ability to imagine that. And I love the way the practices and the teachings of the Christian worldview help you to cultivate your imagination. And I think that that's sorely needed today. Yeah, um, it's interesting to me you bring that up as your main go-to point because in the last section of the third part of this series, um, it's the conclusion, and the conclusion conclusion is called "Just Imagine," and mm-hmm. almost every paragraph in that section begins with this, the word "Just Imagine," then blah blah blah, right? And um, uh, it, it's all about, you know, look, if you want the church to be the way it needs to be, you've got to visualize and imagine in your mind how it should be hmm. in order to get it there. You've got to use your imagination to create a goal uh, to get from point A to point B. And so, yeah, very good. Scott, what about you? Yeah, um, just on a on the whole, I think one of the things that is 
um, really attractive to me about this and stands out is uh, one, the notion of the individual Christian as a participating or as a participant in the um, full work of God, not only in, you know, church life, but also globally in terms of, you know, humanity. Um, and so that, that really pushes back against the, I'm just a passive observer or, you know, I'm just along for a ride kind of thing. Um, there's the, the heavy emphasis on the individual as a participant and, yeah. you know, if, since I'm a Baptist preacher, I use the term membership a lot to be a member of the church and not a, not a card carrying privilege carrying mm-hmm. membership, but a, um, an embodied participating, not only in the life of the church as if it were just an organization, but in the life that God gives people as he transforms them and just, how participating in in the body of believers in a local church can have radical impacts and ramifications on other people that you may only talk to once a week or you might only say hi to once or twice i mean it it's there there's so much more going on than just you know just showing up on a sunday morning for christianity and i mm. i appreciate this so much i think that's that for me, I know that's a real big concept, but that that's huge. And I, I so appreciate it being said the way that Dr. Noggle says it. Yeah, it uh, sort of is uh, wrapped in this idea of commitment, right? The Christian life is a commitment. And um, you're participating in every aspect of life because God's interested in every aspect of your life, but also because you're committing every aspect of your being to God when you come under his authority as a Christian. And so, uh, you know, a lot of people sort of take this non-committal view to Christianity. Oh, I'm a Christian, you know, but um, if I was listening to a song on the radio this morning uh, where the person talks about having this nightmare when they wake up, they, it causes them to pray. And what they pray is, uh, you know, I believe in you, but don't talk to me directly, God. I don't want to have that much of a commitment, you know, <laughs> and uh, it was you know, an interesting song. Uh, But the whole idea was, um, I want the benefits without the work that goes with it. Mm. And, um, you know, part of the benefit, and I don't mean like, oh, get to heaven. I mean, like, you know, part of the benefits of being in the Christian life is living continuously under the authority of God's rule and reign, which includes uh, God's blessings and provision and his walking with you and his being with you in the good times. And his being with you in the troubling times and the trials and the tribulations and everything else uh, in the lows and the valleys, you know, God's walking with you. And, um, you know, it, so the participation isn't just for the great things. It's for all the things. Yeah. Right. And, and I, I think, think you're going to say something. Well, I was just going to say that what this Christian worldview discussion makes possible for the commitment of the believer is it it um, makes it reminds us that our bodies matter. It reminds us that our work matters, no matter what that work is. And so when we are able to know that, hey, my my non ministry, non missionary job matters um, because it is part of um God's redemptive plan in the world, and not just so that I can evangelize to my coworkers, but that it matters in 
in a real way um, and that my um, my whole self matters the whole person matters the whole person is saved and this includes what I do with all of me including my body this isn't just a disembodied kind of faith and so I think that sometimes that lack of commitment can spring from a theology that only emphasizes this thing that is otherworldly disembodied and kind of hard for us to get our real lives to line up with. Right. Well, and in, you know, a lot of the traditional thinking is who cares what happens here? We're just trying to get to heaven. We're just passing mm. through this place. Mm. Um, you know, in Genesis, when God says to Adam, you know, it's not good for you to be alone. You need a helper. Uh, he creates Eve. And then he says to the two of them, essentially build a community, take care of the world together. And so, um, you know, the Christian calling is to be God's stewards of this planet, which involves, um, you know, I mean, people that are making roads are stewards of this planet. Yeah. You know, people that are building houses are stewards of this planet. People who are rescuing animals are stewards of this planet. You know, people who are cleaning up the oceans are stewards of this planet. And, uh, you know, so many jobs uh, fulfill God's original command for humanity uh, mm -hmm. to, in essence, care for this world. And I think we oftentimes forget that, you know, that call was given before the fall. We don't, yeah. we don't do this stuff because it's broken. That's how God intended for it to be from the get-go. And how sad is it? I mean, just piggybacking on that. And I think this is relevant to the rest of the conversation is how, how odd is it? How strange is it that this notion of God calls people to care for the planet um, to almost be some kind of pagan notion or seems to be taken up sometime as some kind of pagan thing? Like, you know, if, if I want, if I'm genuinely going to be like God says in Genesis 1 to um, subdue the earth and care for it that um, there must be something wrong with me and my priorities must be wrong. I mean, you know, that, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. When you hear things like, you know, oh, those guys that are tree huggers are all atheists. Well, they shouldn't be, you know, <laughs> like, right. You know, That's right. Um, I mean, Christians should be caring for deforestation. In fact, they should be leading the charge against deforestation, you know, right. because we're God's representatives of the world and we should understand that. Uh, in some respects, better than anybody, because we're commanded to be that in God's word. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, so this is something I love about um, some of these writings from Dr. Noggle, where he uh, makes a distinction where he says, look, when the Bible talks about to um, not pursue the things of the world, he's talking about the sinful part of the world, not the literal creation, and he goes on to make some other distinctions like that, like flesh would yeah. be the and corrupted flesh, not your actual body. And these are really important teachings that I think a lot of people missed along the way. And uh, it can really make a difference in your life and in the world when you embrace that call. Yeah. I was talking to my Sunday school class about something along those lines just this past weekend, where um, we were talking about um, the different aspects of humanity. And I brought up the... Um, uh, the requirements in Titus and Timothy for deacons and elders. And one of the requirements is that they have to have a good reputation in the community outside the church. Hmm. And you can't have a good reputation outside the church if you're not involved in the life of the community outside the church. 
And, um, you know, so it's important for us as Christians to be involved in the world and to be involved in the things going on outside of the church in our communities. You know, what good are we doing for everybody in our community? Um, and you know, if you have a bad reputation, of course, outside the community, you probably shouldn't be in a position of leadership in the church uh, because um, they probably have a pretty good understanding of your character, you know, and if you've got a bad reputation there, you're probably going to do some damage in the church as well. So, uh, so it's important to, to be in the world. And when God says, you know, don't be of the world, again, just like you said, Christine, it's, it's don't, be, don't be characterized by the sinful practices and behaviors of the world, but be in the world, sharing God's kingdom with the world and reflecting God's image in humanity to the world around you. Which yeah. is fundamental to a lot of um, worldview driven stuff here is this notion of taking apart the, uh, sac- the secular sacred divide. Yes. Um, you know, so we have these sacred kinds of vocations. Oh, you're a priest. Oh, you're a preacher. Oh, you're a minister. Oh, you know, all of those kinds of things, as opposed to what is a more fundamental biblical notion that every kind of job, every kind of vocation mm-hmm. can be sacred. Um, as long as it's a Christian putting his hands or her hands to the work and doing it to the glory of God. So you, yeah, you can be a mechanic to the glory of God and that would be great. And some of that's going to be how you do your job with integrity and how you're going to, um, how you're not going to overcharge your, you know, your, your clients. And, um, you could be a CPA, you know, who is a Christian CPA who, you know, does his job well and, you know, does what there's, I mean, you know, there's all these different kinds of facets. And I, mm-hmm. I think, gosh, they just, in, in my world, I think that slapped some people upside the face and they didn't realize that that was possible. You can be a used car salesman and be a Christian. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. So. Yeah, I'd love to meet some more Christian used car salesmen who, t- who take that seriously, right? <laughs> right, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's also sort of going along those lines. Not only is every vocation, you know, meant to be sacred, but I think that every person is called to be a minister. And so, you know, there's this idea that only the pastor and the youth pastor, whoever is, is doing ministry. And, you know, the way you help them is you bring lost people to them so they can minister to them. Uh, it's, it's not really this idea of everything I do needs to be an active ministry. And all Christians are meant to be ministers. And, um, you know, so the used car salesman can sell cars to the glory of God and also minister to the needs of those who come into his doors at the same time. Yeah. And I would say that that extends to like this, the concept that we are part of the ministry of reconciliation. I think that that extends too to the way we um, repair the, the world through our work. So the broken systems that govern most used car salesman protocols, like part, part of being a Christian in that, in that world is repairing those systems, right? Or, um, or if you were the, the mechanic example before, you're, you're, that act of repair is kind of part of the act of, of restoring and repairing the creation. So there's something redemptive about the work itself, which is really important to know. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, very work much so. The curse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think um, I've, I know I've argued this in my theology classes, but I think we'll be doing work in heaven 
which, um, you know, might make some people sad. But, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, is uh, you know, work before the fall was joyful and good. And the toil and the negativity that comes along with work is, is a result of the fall. Uh, but I think we'll all have responsibilities and jobs to do in the eternal state um, because God's a God of order and productivity. And there's no reason for there not to be productivity in the new heaven and the new earth. Or to put it in terms that I like, creativity, right? Yes, right. <laughs> right? <laughs> like that's um of course and think about how joyful it is when you are engaging in some work that you love when you are using your your creative gifts that god gave you and you get deep into that flow state and what a wonderful experience that is of course i can imagine that being part of the kingdom and and part of heaven that that's that sounds wonderful and i've argued in the past that <clears throat> that's part of what makes the what that's part of what constitutes the Imago Dei in us mm -hmm. is that creative aspect mm -hmm. of what it is to be human. We, you know, when we are creative in some ways, we, um, we demonstrate exactly one of those things. That's fundamentally what God does. God yeah. creates. And when we are creative, we are, we are mimicking that to some degree, obviously not to the same extent, but, um, but it's part of it. And I think it's, that's, that's a good thing for us to think about. Absolutely. This, this conversation makes me think of one of the other um, parts of the writing that I really connected with. And it's Dr. Noggle's discussion of Christian humanism. He says that salvation in Christ is not a dehumanizing, but a rehumanizing enterprise. And I, I wonder how many people out there would find the phrase Christian humanist to be kind of an oxymoron um, when I think that Jesus teaches us the way to be human. And of mm -hmm. course, that includes everything that's important to humanity. And what a wonderful vision, a wonderful thing to imagine going forward. What would it look like for us to be Christian humanists? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Uh yeah, and I, I think maybe it's off-putting be just because that word humanist has got a certain connotation. Now, I mean, off-putting, I guess, in some evangelical circles. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if it would necessarily be off-putting mm -hmm. everywhere. But, um, you know, connotation matters, um, unfortunately. And I, I would love to reclaim that term mm -hmm. in just the way you just put it, Christine. That's good. Yeah. David Noggle was a huge fan of Switchfoot. Uh, and, um, you know, it went to a number of their concerts and I don't know how many of their songs I heard him play, uh, mm -hmm. at the beginning of lectures and things like that. Um, uh, but he was very much into the arts and, and another band, uh, that, uh, a lot of Christian thinkers tend to really gravitate to is U2. And, um, when U2 did their rattle and hum tour in uh, the late eighties, they used to open with um, the song Helter Skelter by the Beatles. And for those who may not know, Charlie, uh, Charles Manson said that it was that song that made him think he needed to go and start, you know, killing people and having yeah. people kill people. And um, when you two would sing the song, they would open it and say, Charles Manson stole this from the Beatles and we're stealing mm. it back. And <laughs> oh, I love that. And, um, you know, there's a song by Nine Inch Nails called Hurt, which is a really great song. 
Uh, and then Johnny Cash took the song and changed a couple of subtle lyrics in the song. Uh, and in many respects, sort of Christianized the song in his version of it. Uh, but what's interesting is that Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails loved having Johnny Cash do it. And in fact, I think Trent Reznor had something to do with the video that went along with the song uh, that Johnny Cash, you know, Johnny Cash's version of the song. Uh, but Johnny Cash took a number of songs and sort of Christianized them. There was a Depeche Mode song um, uh, that dealt with um, your own personal Jesus, you know, and they sort of sang it uh, in a way of saying, you know, kind of like, I'm better than Jesus. I can, I can be my own Jesus. And Johnny Cash reworked that to say sort of everyone needs a personal Jesus, right? Mm. And, um, you know, so he, he did a lot of that. But um, your idea of reclaiming, Scott, uh, sort of mm. makes me think of that. It's this, this idea of, you know, just because a term has been used one way, doesn't mean that's the only way it should be used or even how it should be used. And gosh, Johnny Cash is such a great example because when we're reclaiming, we're not, um, we're not going to turn it into something that's bad art. We're not going to turn it into something that nobody wants to listen to or that is preachy. All Johnny Cash did was make a creative interpretation regarding these songs and it caused us to hear them in a different way. And I think many people now just think of Hurt as a Johnny Cash song, particularly among the, the younger generation. I've had a couple students talk about that song. Oh, you know, that Johnny Cash song hurt and I'd say well you know that was from my generation of of <laughs> the nine inch nails and they'd be like what yeah and, As my wife would and, say it was played on the bad kids radio station that's you know? right <laughs> and, and she yeah. always follows that with the station you listen to you know that's right that's <laughs> right yeah but I mean the the point here of course is that gosh Johnny Cash just made a, a beautiful a beautiful rendition a beautiful interpretation he made a thing of beauty and, and creativity and people are going to gravitate toward that and I love the fact that you bring up the notion of bad art, um, mm -hmm. because I think that to some degree, like you were talking about the, you know, the Christian imagination, that this uh, worldview driven kind of thing pushes against what is what is bad art, because bad art most of the time is just either an irreverent or um, an unsuitable copy of something else that was good. And because Christians, you know, have this creative streak that's in, endowed to us by our creator, um, when all we do is make a bad copy of someone else's work, that is the, the very notion of bad art, mm -hmm. and no matter what it is. And oh my gosh, I mean, just stop it with the bad art already. Can, can, we, just, can we just stop Christian cinema altogether? I'm sorry, that's probably wrong. I'll There might be a few good apples out there. Well, I'll never forget the time that um, the song Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen, someone had rewritten some parts of it to make it a worship song. Yeah. And it, it really, um, well, it just stripped the song of its nuance and its tension and the thing that yeah. makes it really good. Uh, it's like, don't do this don't do this. Right. <laughs> I just want to reclaim good Christian art as things like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. I know those are the classic examples. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe even to this point, we might even think of some filmmakers like Scott Derrickson as doing good Christian art, whether he thinks of it that way or not. I think, you know, there are some things that are 
worth that are certainly worth thinking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, coming back to the idea of art and good art, um, one of the, I guess it was the first year I was a student at Dallas Baptist University, the movie In the Bedroom came out. And uh, David Noggle uh, invited some students to go with him to see that film. And I was one of the ones that went along uh, to see it. And then after the film, we went to a coffee shop to discuss the philosophical issues in the film. Uh, and so, um, uh, but In the Bedroom is a movie uh, about um, a couple who have an adult son and this adult son falls in love with a woman and her ex-husband murders the son. And I'm not really giving anything away oh, there. Boy. The murder happens in like the first couple of minutes. of okay. the, film. <laughs> the whole movie is about the parents then learning how to process the death of their son uh, him being murdered, how to process the whole court issue with the other guy and also deal with seeing the woman their son loved in town with her kids and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, you know, uh, living her life as normal, even though the son is dead and the husband's in jail and all that. Right. Uh, and so it's a it's a very, uh, very interesting movie. Uh, but um the whole idea is, is, you know, these guys going through the grieving process and being mad at one another, being mad at God, being mad at the situation, being mad at, um, you know, the, the girl, the boy was in love with just all this stuff. And, um, it's not really meant to be a Christian film, but there are so many truthful aspects of humanity in that film that I think it's a film that I've encouraged many people to watch. And I've said to them, you know, look, there's some bad language in the film and, uh, you know, it's rated R. I think it's rated R because of the murder scene uh, primarily. Uh, but, um, you know, it's an adult film with adult concepts that are important human concepts that adults need to grapple with. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, that's the idea of good art. And uh, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book on the Bible and art and did a lot of additional writings where he deals with art. Um, and a lot of his a lot of his push deals with making art that's technically excellent. In other words, it has to be good, uh, but then also making art that's truthful. And uh, truthful art doesn't always have a happy ending or it doesn't have a redemptive element. And so uh, I think that's important, you know, when movies like God's Not Dead come out and the atheist is gonna die in the end, but all of a sudden has a conversion experience two seconds before he passes away. You know, it's like, well, you have to have that conversion experience for it to be a Christian film. Uh-huh. And it's like, no, you don't, because that's <laughs> not the reality of most situations. You know, if someone's an atheist all their life, most of the time when they die, they're going to die as an atheist. And there's nothing, you know, non-Christian about showing the reality of how most of those situations turn out. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's one of the things that causes people to go, oh, this Christian art, you know, it's, it's a little preachy. <laughs> because it always has to have this redemptive element uh, instead of it just sort of being truthful and being made well. Right. Yeah, I was I've, I spent this weekend actually at a conference for for musical theater writers, and I was in this um, this great panel on storytelling that I got to listen to. And um, a couple of things from our conversation uh, today keep coming back to my mind. And one of them was they were talking about how uh, playwrights and authors work 
themes into their into their story and basically said this doesn't really this isn't really a thing you consider as you're writing you consider the plot and then the themes will arise sort of naturally from the plot and I think that this is part of um how a more holistic approach to Christianity can inform Christian art making. Because when you think that the only thing that matters is getting out that evangelistic message, then you form the art around that message. Whereas if you understand that the art form itself is valuable and you approach it from that, from that, um, perspective, then you will end up having some powerful themes that come out of it. Um, and that's, so that's the direction you have to take is going, okay, I'm going to consider the work of art first. And then these themes will arise. And they'll arise partly because you're just a faithful Christian expressing your perspective. It's going to come out. But I don't think it works well when we do it the other way around. And so again, this is a function of the the fully formed Christian worldview. Um, and this makes me think of another thing that uh, Dr. Nagel wrote in here. He was talking about the ministry of imagination. And he's, he says he started to apply that to liturgy in the church. And so he talks about how we would cultivate a ministry of imagination through story, song, poem, parable, symbol, sacrament. And the part that got me is he says it's ultimately incarnation. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was with another group of theater folk. Theater people are great. I was with another group of theater people, and this was particularly a group for Christians who are in the arts. And th- many of them had come from Baptist or other evangelical contexts and ha- were now in Anglican contexts, as I am. Part of what appealed to them was the um, embodied nature of the service. And one of them actually said, what we do every week is almost like theater. It's almost a play. Because <laughs> you are acting out in these physical forms, the, the, the whole gospel story, as we take communion every week and walk forward to it, as you kneel and as you stand, and as perhaps there's incense. Or per- so um, this idea of embodiment seems to be crucial not only to the way we approach the arts but also to the way we approach our church services yeah correct me if i'm wrong but didn't uh dr noggle use um some robert weber stuff in his classes do you remember like ancient future worship or ancient future time or something like that that sounds right and you know the so there are certainly more Christian scholars. I mean, Dr. Weber is not with us anymore either, but um, there are more Christian scholars who are working in this field to say, Hey, listen, when we worship, we are to some degree, the purpose of our worship services ought to be to reenact the, um, you know, the creation and uh, recreation and consummative Mm -hmm. work that um, embodies the full, uh, spectrum of scripture yeah and that's that's cool and that's i i feel you i I know i know what you're talking about Mm -hmm. what brings about the idea of confession and um also reconciliation in our worship services with one another uh but also between us and the lord and um yeah i think i think that the the artistic stuff is really important especially for imagination and uh, you know, Christine, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, it, 
Um, when people are focused on telling a good story, the other themes just kind of show up, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a series of books that I read with our younger girls. It's, uh, it's, it's books on etiquette uh, that are based on Disney princess films. Oh, boy. And uh, so, but they're really fun. They're really good. You know, each one's about 10 pages. And um, they use things that you would think, you know, if I wasn't thinking about that, I wouldn't even, you know, thought you know but but it's it's clearly there in the film and so like Mm -hmm. an example Mm -hmm. is um uh gaston in beauty and the beast keeps interrupting bell and so they use gaston in the book gaston interrupts bell and he takes her book out of her hand (laughs) it's good to listen to people till they're finished speaking you know like like that kind of stuff in uh you know in the book uh and so it takes these instances of something happening in the film and then says, you know, and here's what you can learn from this, you know, for right. good or bad, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, I think you can see, uh, I, I think you can see themes, you know, in all art, uh, but the best art is written around the story and the themes yeah. just sort of fall into place. Yeah. Um, Scott, you mentioned that uh, Dr. Weber was no longer with us. And of course, I think I've mentioned several times throughout this series that Dr. Noggle is no longer with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, his, his work has had a profound impact on, on me and on my ministry. I think it's had a profound impact on countless students of his over the years and, and the things that they're doing. Um, but, you know, his work is, I think, far reaching beyond, uh, you, know, even, you know, even his classroom. I think now they're because of his books and other things and, and because of his students who have gone out and then shared his ideas with others. Um, you know, his work is very far reaching. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to do this series is because uh, I feel like his work on the worldview driven church is just as applicable now as it was when he wrote it, uh, whatever it was, 13, 14 years ago. Uh, But um, not only that, um, but I think the church, especially after sort of the COVID issue, has been trying to go, okay, what do we do moving forward? How do we do worship moving forward? Mm. I think this is a perfect time for the church to think through how do we reclaim the holistic view of scripture that we need to have as a congregation? How do we take creation, fall, and redemption into our worship services? And how do we, you know, as we put things back together, do so in a way that does justice to the incarnation, uh, that does justice to um, the history of the church and the saints that have gone before us? And how do we do worship in a way that uh, builds community and brings people together and reminds us that we're all in this world together, saved by the same blood of Christ, living out uh, humanity as Christ showed us to live out humanity. Uh, How do we do that in a way that's not only redemptive, uh, that also brings God glory, but also uh, that then takes God's kingdom to the world and the community around us? Mm Absolutely. One of the passages that stood out to me today as something people need to hear today um, was he, I'm just going to read it. He said, while it is often necessary for Christians to fight the world and its unrighteousness and protect themselves from its polluting powers, the ultimate mindset of the church ought not just be one of militancy and safety. And those two 
words, militancy and safety really stood out to me as some attitudes that I see a lot from church members today. Mm -hmm. And he gives the alternative. He says, rather, the primary orientation of the people of God is positively redemptive, whereby they infuse the healing and sanctifying powers of the gospel wisely and effectively into the institutions and social structures of human life and history. Christ Mm -hmm. transforms culture through the church. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. I think many of us who believed that Christ transforms culture through the church, we thought that that was a matter of something like militancy, but the Christian worldview properly understood really provides us with a different way to imagine what that might look like. Sure. Uh, To put it a little bit differently is, uh, you know, uh, militancy is not foundational to changing culture. Love is foundational to changing culture. Yes. That's uh, it. You know, the church, uh, has to have a, a proper love for the world mm-hmm. and for those in the world in order to take the kingdom of God to the world. Yeah, and that's yeah. worth imagining. 100%, yes. <laughs> well, Scott, Christine, thank you guys so much for being on the podcast today. For those of you listening, uh, as always, we appreciate it. And we will see you again next time with a new topic in uh, the Faith and Culture Now podcast. Good deal. Bye.